For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thus far ends the reading of our gracious Lord's most holy word. May he bless it to us this day. Let us pray together. The Holy Spirit of illumining grace, we ask that you would open uh, our understanding, our ability to receive our hearts, that we would desire uh, your word, that we uh, would, as much as we are able, uh, actively uh, seek to have this word applied to us uh, by you, O Holy Spirit, and that we would give ourselves to full attention, that we would not be distracted by what has come before about what we are doing later today, or by the little noises and creaks of the building or in our own heart. Uh, Lord, may we not get distracted. And even when we are, may we rejoice in your grace, for we are not saved by how well uh, we pay attention. But Lord, we are nourished uh, as we come to these means of grace and as we receive them through faith. And so may we do so. May we be nourished. May we grow. May we have uh, a, a better life uh, in our soul, Uh, which is always in union with this body for now. And Lord, that we might long for the day uh, when we will come to heaven and our soul will be with you and there will be that separation. But God, where our body will be reunited uh, in that glorified state and we will only know perfection with you. So help us, God, uh, to hear your word to us, uh, which does give us uh, renewed life and strength as we uh, wander, as it were, through this life as sojourners in a world that is not our home, but as we long for the greater country yet to come for us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So how do you teach someone gratitude? How do you teach someone gratitude to be grateful? Of course, this is a, a pretty hard task. It's hard to just make people be grateful. It's hard to just be grateful, especially for naturally ungrateful sinners to try and teach 
other naturally ungrateful sinners to be grateful. And so the first step, indeed, is praying. It is praying to God in faith that he would bring about that fruit of gratitude. But as God works through means, uh, there does seem to be a pretty clear way of instructing one another to be grateful. And it's this. First, you help them see that uh, terrible things that they have been freed from, especially when they have deserved those things. Second, you remind them of the wonderful things that they have been given, especially the things that they did not deserve. And then lastly, you lead them uh, to respond in their resulting gratitude, especially as they look to God himself as the giver of every good and perfect gift. In fact, this is the method of God himself throughout scripture. And so we have our text today. After having called us in the previous section uh, to press on to the end in faith in Christ, the preacher reminds us once again uh, of, of what Christ has accomplished for us, as well as the only response that we can have to this amazing grace. And so he recalls to us the terrors of Mount Sinai to show them the great contrast of having been uh, brought to heaven itself as he begins uh, this description of the holy Mount Zion. But when he warns everyone uh, who comes together amidst God's holy and heavenly uh, presence to respond rightly by trusting in the grace of Christ as we worship the holy God at peace with his return for that final terrifying judgment, uh, indeed more terrifying than Sinai ever was. Because we enjoy that unshakable hope of being citizens of the heavenly kingdom, which will certainly be consummated in his final glory. It will come to completion. And so in Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, uh, this minister of the word uh, and, and myself uh, am calling you uh, through this word to respond to Christ's grace by worshiping God in faith. You respond to Christ's grace by worshiping God in faith. That is what this text is all about. And this is your right response because the terrors of the old covenant are gone. The terror of the old covenant is gone. Second, the joy of the new covenant has come. The joy of the new covenant has come. And lastly, the consummation of Christ's kingdom is near. It is the completion. The consummation of Christ's kingdom is near. And so first, the terror of the old covenant is gone. So why then does the preacher leave Mount Sinai, though, unnamed? If you noticed, he doesn't name it. Why does he leave Mount Sinai unnamed and yet make sure to explain uh, those very vivid details of this tangible, uh, what's often called a storm theophany? Maybe not often, but it is called that. A storm theophany. Why leave out the name, but give us all these details? Uh, So it's using our fear of the unknown. It's it's a natural thing we all go through. The fear of the unknown. And he causes us to start bracing ourselves in trepidation. So we can more fully experience what the saints of the old covenant uh, would have all been sensing. But it also prepares us for the great contrast of his beautiful description to come. Of the immense joys we now have in heaven. Because of Christ's new covenant. So he's trying to give us a real feeling, a real fear, a real sense of what was going on. And he's preparing us for the beauties of the new covenant. 
And so again, this is that classic fear of the unknown as the preacher brings us into what was probably very obvious or at least more obvious to his uh, original audience here, but by making his way uh, there through the ominous. So he's making his way to the obvious by way of the ominous. Now, of course, he's talking about the scene of the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai uh, as they lived under God's old covenant in Exodus. But just like our favorite Bible stories do often grow dull by repetition or they seem tame by familiarity. Uh, This skilled pastor, he sought to find a way to make these ancient horrors of Sinai be felt once again. For this must have been absolutely uh, overwhelming to experience uh, with your senses, which left their souls in a state of panic and a desire to run and to hide. It wasn't just a massive and even miraculous storm, unlike anything that he had seen before, with a mixture of impenetrably thick darkness and blinding flashes of light, along with those bone-chilling winds and ankle-breaking earthquakes and blasting trumpet sounds so loud that your heart seemed to be stuck in an unending state of compression as it struggled to bear down with the pressure of those sound waves. More than this, it was a shocking revelation of God's awesome holiness. But even more than this, it was the fact that this unrelenting storm theophany was actually the merciful restraint of God. As he began to cause his glory Uh, the glory of his holy presence to bear down into his creation and yet not annihilate everything in his path, especially the unholy sinners. This is why the psalmist and the prophets described the clouds as dust among God's feet and why God told Job that the lightning covers his hand. It's not because God has hands or feet, but because this is a small way for us to begin to understand just how incredibly powerful God is. The clouds that bring tornadoes, which rip our houses from their foundations and toss them away, miles and miles away, like a Lego set. These are mere puffs of dust kicked up by God's feet. The lightning, which is said to be five times hotter than the surface of the sun, able to rip trees in half like butter, is nothing more than a handful of fireflies moving around harmlessly in God's palm. But again, what may be like a plaything to God is a matter of life and death for us. And the reason why those ancient Israelites beg that no further message be given to them. Stop. We are terrified. And yet, this is in sharp contrast to the gift of heaven, identified with Mount Zion to come. Mount Sinai, that which was seen and smelt and felt and heard, left ancient Israel begging for it to stop. But Mount Zion, that which we cannot yet experience with our bodily senses, is where our hope resides. Because our hope rests through faith in Christ, who is there right now seated at the right hand of God the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords. Indeed, our King, our Lord. But why does the preacher explain this same event through the storm, uh, the command, uh, uh, and Moses? 
So the storm, the command, and Moses. So summarizing the events of Mount Sinai by looking at it from three different perspectives, he's laboring, he is trying so hard for his listeners to come to terms with just how fearful this moment would have been. And so as we've gone over, he began with the storm itself. Normal storms are already really intense uh, shows of God's awesome power. So how much more than a miraculous theophany of his holy glory upon the ancient Mount Sinai. But what's more is that even the most simple command of Yahweh, very simple, to make sure the animals stay back or else they will be struck dead. This was too much for them to handle, it says. Yes, even this uh, seemingly insignificant command, at least compared to the far weightier commands uh, they would hear from God, requiring perfect love for him and perfect love for each other. Indeed, this command to love your animals enough to keep them back was too much for the Israelites to bear. Not even here could an Israelite honestly feel a sense of confidence in their own strength and determination to keep the law of God perfectly, personally, and perpetually, not even for their animals. And third... Even the great Moses was scared to death. Moses was scared to death. The storm itself would have scared anyone. And the command of God through the storm were just as unbearable. But here we see that even God's own specially chosen and empowered Moses, the prophet, the mediator, the savior, the judge of Israel, who led Israel through the ten plagues, who did not fear Pharaoh on their departure, who split that massive sea, and who was the only one, the only one, to be invited into the thick darkness where God was. Even he was terrified by the sight and confessed truthfully, I tremble with fear. And this is exactly what God's people were left with in the old covenant. Trembling with fear before God's holiness. Undone at the prospect of keeping his perfect law and trembling too much in terror to even begin to draw near with confidence to God's holy glory, even being barred because of the many veils and structures that kept them back. And yet the grace of God was still there for the elect, we do confess rightly, as they looked through the impossibility and the fear to the grace of the new covenant yet to come in God's Messiah. And so the second reason that we have to respond to Christ's grace by worshiping God in faith, is because the joy of the new covenant has come. The joy of the new covenant has come. And so in verses 22 to 24, what do these eight descriptions all have in common? There's eight descriptions. Heaven, that is the answer. Heaven, they're all talking about heaven. Here we have multiple descriptions of the place itself, the angelic beings, uh, the elect of God, God himself, the person and ongoing effect of Christ's finished work of redemption, but where they all clearly unite in one harmonious anthem of God's glory is in describing the heaven that currently exists and furthermore the heaven that is truly ours right now through faith in Jesus Christ. David may have uh, taken the stronghold of what is called the earthly Zion thereafter calling it the city of David in 2 Samuel 5, for example. But now we can say we have presently arrived at the heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the living God. We don't need a great mountain. 
We don't need a wonderful city. We do not even need a mighty nation on earth. In fact, these things would be extremely distracting. For what we already have is this. It is heaven now. Right now. Indeed, where we are citizens uh, forever and ever. And so Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Peter says, we are sojourners in this life. Likewise, although the earthly Jerusalem was the constant anthem of the old covenant saints, most of the Israelites of Christ's earthly ministry, uh, they did seem to have forgotten the purpose of this earthly type, namely to point them to the heavenly Jerusalem. They were quite distracted. But the likes of Abraham and Sarah and Moses, they were all placing their hope in this heavenly Jerusalem, and all of whom never actually saw the earthly promised land and yet all of whom now reside in the heavenly promised land of this greater Jerusalem, which is above. Furthermore, we are said to be with the endless number of God's holy angels who sang and sing uh, praises to our Lord, but who sang those praises to our Lord at his birth, the likes of which Enoch prophesied would return with our Lord again, who sing praises to God unceasingly in heaven this very moment, and who are sent as God's messengers and servants For his glory and our good. And notice their festal gatherings, it says. They're already celebrating. And they are celebrating our salvation. Because of the victory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Spirit. And then he moves on to the assembly of the firstborn. Who are enrolled in heaven. Here using the language of the nation of Israel. Being called Yahweh's firstborn son. In Exodus 4. And yet clarifying that this refers to the true spiritual Israel whose hearts have been circumcised by the Spirit of God and who enjoy those membership roles, not of ancient Israel or even of a local church, but of heaven itself, focusing on our heavenly citizenship. Then moving from the place of heaven to the unique creatures that live there and then to its human residence, we now come to God himself. But here, the focus is on God being judge over all, it says. And so even amidst the joys, the praises, the celebration of heaven, we will never forget what grace means. We will always understand that God is the eternal judge over all. And yet how the Father has chosen to pour out his judgment upon the Son in, the holy, uh, in our place, rather, so that we would enjoy his holy presence Forgiveness, grace, and mercy forever. But as we cannot truly enjoy life in the holy presence of God without absolute perfection, we must be absolutely perfect to enjoy God's holy presence. God also chose to make us perfect in the righteousness of his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the preacher speaks of the elect again, but now focusing on the spirits of the saints who enjoy heavenly life with God as his righteous ones who have been made perfect. And yet notice the spirit without the body, reminding us that there is something still yet to come, even now when our bodies will be raised and reunited with our souls at our final glorification upon Christ's return and consummation. Indeed, this is all possible because of Jesus alone, the mediator of the new covenant. Humans are not entitled to paradise just for being human. 
pagans find false comfort in this skewed view of God in heaven, that God's goal for us in life is just our happiness and that it continues on in what they so often call paradise, which just really means a place of pleasure without consequence. But scripture never teaches anything like this. Instead, heaven is the place of God's glory, which God revealed to Adam in his own perfect work week at creation, ending on the eternal seventh day of rest, which was held out to Adam to enjoy forever with God and his posterity if he would have simply refrained from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to then enjoy the tree of life with God forever. But submitting to Satan, Adam tried to be God himself, but was nevertheless graciously cast out from the presence of the tree of life so that he would not live in that fallen state forever, but instead could look in faith to the greater covenant to come and its new mediator, Jesus, who would die upon a cursed tree of God's judgment so that his people could die with him, but also so that we could live again in his resurrection life and long for the day when we will eat, it says in Revelation. We will eat from the tree of life forevermore. And in this way, Christ's blood clearly speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Even after he was beaten to death by his own brother, Abel still continued to live on, both in his spirit, enjoying life with God in heaven, but as well as his blood, which cried out for judgment. And as the preacher made clear in the previous chapter, this was because he had faith in the seed of the woman to come, the one who would be the just and the justifier, who would nail his people's sins to the cross, punish his enemies for their sin in hell, and yet rest with his people as his bride, who will wear garments of Christ's righteousness forevermore, washed in his own precious blood and incapable, incapable of being stained ever again. And so what could be better than this? This eight-part description of heaven. Is there anything more that we could possibly look forward to? Yes. There's more. It gets better. It is the final consummation of the kingdom of God, which is yet to come. In the beginning, God made heaven and earth. And so they have continued to exist as two distinct realms of God's creative power. In his omnipresence, God is not confined to either realm. And yet there is a constant sense in which heaven itself, along with the angels and the saints who are there now, Scripture presents to us the sense in which they enjoy a fuller and more perfect experience of the triune God and his most holy presence. And so we do confess the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. But where heaven and earth have differed in many ways, as they continue to differ significantly, uh, there is at least one very unique way in which they're both the same. And it's this. Both are passing away. Both are passing away. Ready to give way to the consummation of the new creation when God will usher in the new heavens and the new earth so that all of his people will finally rest body and soul in the joy and peace of his radiant glory. Even the saints in heaven now are longing for that final day in return of Christ so that he can finish all things. And so the final reason we have 
to respond to Christ's grace by worshiping God in faith is because the consummation of Christ's kingdom is near. It is coming. It is close. The day is coming. So having just described the joy of our connection with heaven, why then does the preacher give this warning? Another warning in verses 25 to 27. It's simply because we're not there yet. We aren't there. We aren't in glory. We're not at the consummation. That's why we must use words uh, that distinguish already, not yet, or inauguration, consummation. We are not there. Although we're not at the foot of Mount Sinai, facing the terrors of that volcanic storm, the burden of the old covenant law, the weakness of those temporary mediators, whether they were prophets, priests, or kings, we're still not in heaven itself. And although we really can rejoice in the union that we have with Christ, along with the souls of the saints who reside with him in heaven, even as we are united through faith uh, in heaven as we worship God right now, it is still painfully obvious that we are still living out our life under the sun. As Kohelet says throughout Ecclesiastes, we live this life under the sun. The saints in heaven do not need this reminder because they now live by sight, rejoicing to, this, to see the face of Christ, our Savior. But here we are, the visible church on earth, still living by faith, still needing to remember to press on in faith, to continue to receive his grace, to take seriously the need of this, uh, to receive this warning, to not reject God's word from heaven. The text makes clear, and we know this, the Israelites uh, did do this, and they were killed off in the wilderness for it. And so the preacher says, if they didn't escape this earthly punishment in rejection of those earthly warnings, what chance would we have to escape the punishment of rejecting God's heavenly word, namely, refusing to trust in Jesus Christ, who is the word of God? And to be clear, the punishment will not be earthly or heavenly. Instead, the punishment will be God's everlasting wrath in hell. Indeed, the terror of Sinai was localized, it was confined, and it was temporary. But as promised through the prophet Haggai and repeated by the minister of the word here, God does say, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. But what we also need to remember is the clearer display of God's grace in the new covenant. Let us not forget that Moses received a similar earthly judgment as those rebellious Israelites for his own rebellion against God because he struck the rock. God barred him. He was not allowed to enter into that earthly promised land of Canaan that was to be later, uh, later to become Jerusalem. But through faith in Jesus Christ, his soul was most certainly welcomed into God's heavenly Jerusalem of joy and of rest. And there he now sits uh, and, and, and lives with the saints of God. And he waits and he longs for the return of Christ, the resurrection of his body and his own entrance, along with all the people of God into the new heavens and the new earth. At the end of the day, just as Moses' eternal hope was not determined by his sinful striking of the rock. Your hope in glory is not determined by your many failures in this life. Instead, your hope is firmly fixed in the rock that is Christ Jesus, the one who took the strike of God's wrath on your behalf, and the one who poured out his living water 
over you, to cleanse you of all your sin, and to fill you with his eternal life, even filling you with the very spirit of God. And so do you refuse to trust in Christ's grace? If so, then stop now and instead turn to Christ in faith. And you too, I promise you, in the name of Jesus, will enjoy heaven this very moment, as well as the hope of God's everlasting rest to come. And for you who already trust in Jesus, rejoice this day that heaven is already yours, and that you simply need to, con- uh, to continue forward in faith and in hope as you wait for the return of your Savior. And so we do not fear the coming judgment of Christ when he will shake all things on earth and in heaven. For as the preacher points out, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Yes, most everything will be removed and done away with in heaven and on earth. But this is good news for God's people. For we are citizens, not of this world. We are citizens of his new creation. And therefore, we will remain as those who cannot be shaken off, even amidst the terror of God's final judgment in Christ Jesus. For we belong to this kingdom by grace, the very kingdom of God, which cannot and will not be shaken. And so then what is the right response to such marvelous grace and such an unshakably firm hope? Worship. That is your response, to worship God. As true citizens of God's unshakable kingdom, let us respond as the grateful recipients of Christ's grace that we are by offering God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, doing only what he commands. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. For those who think God is just their buddy, who just wants them to be happy. Worship is simply another day at the mall, another stroll through the grocery store, another trip to the drive through as they have it their way, ready-made to their order. For those who think, rather, God is a heavy-handed tyrant who likes to watch them squirm, worship is a place of anxiety, of suffering, and of failure as you try to prove yourself and you are never able to do it. But for those who have been given the illumining grace of the Holy Spirit, you now realize that God is not defined by what you think of him. Instead, he is the one true God, the great I am, not who you say I am, without variation or shadow due to change. And that the one true God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and that he has set his eternal love upon his redeemed in Christ Jesus so that he would be the first fruits of his new creation as those who are able to worship our triune God in spirit and in truth and to receive the continual benefit of his sustaining grace each Lord's day through word and sacraments. This that long-packed sentence of all that God has done for us, this, the grace of Jesus Christ, worshiping God, is the primary mission of the church. This is the chief end of man. 
to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And to do so because we are sinners. We must do so through faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so again, because the terror of the old covenant is gone, the joy of the new covenant has come and the consummation of the kingdom of Christ Jesus is near. Let us respond then to this grace of Christ by worshiping God in faith. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, you who deserve all measure of unceasing worship, and this you enjoy in heaven. Lord, it is our high privilege to join with this ongoing heavenly worship each Lord's day as we are called uh, each morning or uh, at at times, Lord, uh, and as this church prepares to be called in the evening as well. Lord, may we all heed that call very seriously. May we prize, prioritize uh, that call. And may we come with hearts of gratitude, ready to receive and to rejoice in you, Jesus Christ, and the gifts that you have given to your church, as you promised that you have given in Ephesians 4, the ministers of word and the ministers of sacrament, that they would be able to do their jobs, that you would bless your church with good ruling elders who rule well, with good deacons who serve and give the mercy of you, Jesus Christ, and that this body, especially here in Madison, would rejoice at the high privilege of being in this, your heavenly presence. And may we all long as your people uh, to be with you forever, uh, not only in heaven, which is so glorious, but indeed the new heavens and the new earth of your new creation, uh, which will come after you uh, finally return and consummate all things. Jesus, give us faith. Carry us forward, even as we prepare to partake of your body and blood through faith in the Lord's Supper. Nourish us and carry us along by your promises that we would trust that you are faithful and that you are true. and You will do what you say. And so you will care for us and you will bring us uh, to the day uh, of uh, rest with you to come. We thank you, God. We pray in your most holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.